Good morning, Genesis. How's everybody doing this morning? Hey, did you hear that Punxsutawney Phil didn't see his shadow? And so spring's coming early this year. I mean, we trust those groundhogs, right? They know what they're talking about. Well, in this instance, sure, yes, please, spring soon. So we'll take it. Hey, if you're new or visiting, we're really glad to have you with us today. I hope I get to meet you at some point today, or please join us at Intro to Genesis after this service, free lunch, free child care. Um, we'd love to see you there and get to know you a little bit. So, hey, quick question as we get started today. How many of you have ever heard or used this phrase? Don't get your hopes up, right? Except that you probably heard it like this. Don't get your hopes up because that's how you say it, right? And if you're like me, you probably remember your parents using this phrase on you when you were kids. You might have said something like, hey, I got my chores done. Can we go get ice cream now? And your parents would say, don't get your hopes up, right? And if you're a parent, you know this is a very valuable tool to keep in your arsenal because your kids are gonna just hit you with so many different questions and you need to be able to say this at the drop of a dime. For instance, if your kids were to say, hey, I know it's a school night, but can I just go to bed whenever I want, maybe go to bed at midnight, you would say, don't get your hopes up, right? Or if your son were to say, hey, I want to go out and take my friends out this weekend. Can I borrow your car, dad? Bless your heart, son. Don't get your hopes up, right? <laughs> it, ain't, it ain't happening. It is a simple and yet powerful phrase. And so this morning, I thought it would be fun for us to practice saying it together. Okay, so I'm going to ask you some questions and you get to say back to me, don't get your hopes up. And if you don't use this phrase often, okay, it helps if you do put a little bit of bless your heart in it. Okay, like the more energy you put into it, the better you're going to feel. So are you ready? See, you should have said don't get your hopes up right there. See, <laughs> just testing you a little bit. So here we go. I really enjoy talking to you. Are you free on Friday night? Oh, you guys are good. You guys have used this before. You've done this. Hey, boss, I've had a productive week. Would you mind if I had a three-day weekend? Here's one. You might actually need to use this one. Hello, officer. Is there any chance that I can just say I'm sorry and the two of us can pretend this never happened? Yeah, that is a don't get your hopes up. That's the way that one is said, right? And here's one. Hey, honey, you look beautiful. Any chance you want to snuggle later? <laughs> I didn't hear it. Don't get, your, don't get your hopes up, right? You know how it works. Yeah, or just straight up no, right? <clears throat> we do offer marriage counseling. So we, or we don't offer, but we can help you. We can, we'd be happy to help you. Uh, it's an amazing phrase. It's empowering to the person that's using it. It's disarming to the person that hears it, right? But when you think about it, what you're really saying is no way. Or you've got to be out of your mind. But deep down, the words are kind of communicating this. You should really just lower your standards. Or maybe next time you should try harder. Or, or here's one. Ugh, why even bother? Right? That's kind of what you're, what you're really trying to say. And on a regular basis, if, if someone were to say, don't get your hopes up, it's not going to hurt your feelings. You're not going to be scarred for life. However, today we're going to talk about the danger of adopting or buying into a don't get your hopes up mentality or theology when it comes to our spiritual lives and our relationship with God that has the potential to not only draw us away from God, but to ruin a perfect relationship with Jesus, to ruin how we understand who he is and what he has done for us. And so today we're continuing in our series that we're calling Citizens. It's based out of a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote in the New Testament called the Book of Philippians. He wrote it to uh, the colony, uh, the Roman colony of Philippi to the believers there. And this idea of citizenship comes from Philippians 3.20 where Paul wrote these words. But our citizenship is in heaven 
and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And those of us that follow Jesus, we know we are waiting for his promised return to this earth, right? right? Sooner rather than later would be good. We're waiting on that. But while we wait, we also know that he has called us to live on mission for him by leveraging our lives to bring the benefits and values of heaven to this earth where we live in the here and now. And so as a church family, as we've been going through this series, we've settled in on this phrase, as citizens of heaven, it's our responsibility to bring Jesus to every person we meet and into every situation that we face. And so in Philippians 1, we learned how the Apostle Paul told believers, don't just believe in Jesus, but you need to be ready to suffer for him because suffering is part of living out your faith in Jesus. Last week, Steve talked about the importance of following Jesus's example to choose humility over pride and to learn to serve the needs of others ahead of our own. And today in chapter three, Paul is gonna talk to us about discovering or maybe for some of us rediscovering a hope that is found in Jesus that will never disappoint us. And so in Philippians 3, Paul begins with these words. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard to you. Now, if you've been reading through Philippians with us over these last several weeks, maybe you've noticed this pattern of joy or rejoicing. Uh, Paul uses some version of that word 12 different times in these four chapters. And today he's going to spend a lot of time not only talking about joy, but challenging us to think about where we rest our hope. Where is your hope? What are the things that you put your hope in? And so we, as we dive in this morning, I want to invite you to be in the scripture with us. And so I want to encourage you to turn to Philippians 3 on your phone or in the Bible that you brought or on your tablet or in the Bibles around the room, you can turn to page 819. And while you're turning there, I got a couple simple questions that I want you to think about. Where do you tend to find hope? What or who do you tend to want to put your hope in? While you're thinking about that, let me pray. We'll jump in together. Father in heaven, we love you and we're thankful that you're here with us today. We're thankful for the sunrise this morning that is just a great reminder of your faithfulness to us. I'm thankful that Paul took time to write in prison to the people in Philippi and I'm thankful for this study that we've been doing in your word. Would you help these words to, to take root in our heart? Would you help us to hear them and not only to know them, not only to learn them, but to apply them? Holy Spirit, would you help us to not walk out of here smarter, but willing to apply these things so that our lives would be changed and we could be more and more like you. Help us to find true hope in Jesus. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. So where do you find your hope? Where do you tend to look for hope? What kind of things are you tempted to put your hope in? Or deep down, who or what helps you define what makes you feel valuable? Now, my guess is if you're like me and you've grown up in church or you've been around church for a while, you know that Jesus should be the answer to all those questions, right? We, we know that. But if you were honest like me, wouldn't you have to agree it's really easy to allow all kinds of things to compete for our hope? Because we just hope in lots of different things, right? Some of us are hoping to make the team or hoping to get into the right school. We're hoping to get married or we're hoping to get the promotion. We're hoping to have kids and we're hoping that one day those kids will be productive citizens and move out of the house on their own, right? We hope for all kinds of things. We hope for early retirement and good health and long life. But here's the thing. 
the longer we live on this earth, the more times you travel around the block, you know the danger in getting your hopes up, don't you? When you get your hopes up, you are almost guaranteed to be let down. Because sometimes you don't make the team. Sometimes you don't get the job you want. Sometimes marriage isn't what you think it's gonna be. And sometimes parenting is just harder than any of us could have ever anticipated. And so when it comes down to it, we put our hope in lots of things that ultimately they just let us down. They leave us feeling empty and dissatisfied and frustrated. And even, even on those occasions when you do get the thing that you really want, you get the job, you marry the love of your life. Well, that does not mean that we are immune to misplaced or worse yet, false hope. How many times in your life have you achieved or received something that you thought you wanted? If I could just have that, if I could just do this, well, this sense of whatever this is would go away and you get it and you realize, well, there's gotta be more. There's gotta be more than life than this. Now, thankfully, the Apostle Paul, he understood this. And in Philippians 3, he's gonna write to us about the danger of having a misplaced hope. And in chapter three, he begins to dismantle this concept of false hope that we're tempted to buy into on a spiritual level that impacts our relationship with God. Look again at what he says in verse one. He says, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it's a safeguard to you. Now that word safeguard tells us that he is getting ready to tell us something to try to protect us from someone or something that is out to harm us. And he just jumps right into it in verse two. Look at what he says. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence or no hope in the flesh. Now, Paul sounds a little salty here, doesn't he? He's a grown man who is name calling right? He is saying those people are dogs and evildoers and mutilators of the flesh. And it might cause you to think, well, what's the big, why is the, why are you so frustrated, Paul? Well, here's the thing. In those days, there was a group of people known as the Judaizers. And this is essentially what the Judaizers were teaching people. When it comes to Jesus's ability to save you from your sins and to make you right in your relationship with God, the Judaizers would say, don't get your hopes up. I mean, Jesus is good, but he's not good enough on his own. And then they were teaching this idea of a Jesus plus theology. And really they were saying it's Jesus plus our rules and regulations that will make you right with God. And maybe some of you understand this kind of thinking, right? And sadly, there's a number of churches and individuals that teach this, that buy into this, that peddle this. And it is, it is so dangerous because it's, it takes away from who Jesus is. It takes away from everything he's accomplished for us. And it leads to two extremes that we got to watch out for. The first extreme is legalism. And this is an excessive adherence to a law or formula. Now, I'm just curious, how many of you like me like to have a checklist to knock off, right? Okay. You probably tend towards legalism like I do. I grew up in a, in a church family that you were kind of taught, hey, if you just do these things, right? If you dress this way, if you drink this and don't drink that, there was this mentality of you got to do these things and pray these prayers to be made right with God. Now, I'm very thankful for how I was brought up, but I just have found as an adult, I tend towards legalism. Now, the other side of the spectrum is false teaching. 
And this is a belief or an opinion that is contrary to orthodox Christian doctrine. And so if Christian doctrine is right here, what Jesus taught in the scriptures, well, false teaching is anything and everything else. People will tack on all kind of things. Well, yeah, that's good, but you should really do this. Or did you know that if you pray in a certain way, if you do this or that, whatever it might be, well, it's just, it's false teaching. And here's the thing, both of them are dangerous. Both of them lead us away from Jesus and both of them harm our relationship with God. And so needless to say, this is why Paul was so upset with the Judaizers and their attempts to mislead people away from the work that Jesus had done for them. And here's why Paul was calling them dogs and evildoers and mutilators. Because they were trying to convince people that if you really wanted to be right with God, then you had to be circumcised. Now, my, I was explaining this to my older two boys this week who are 13 and 11. They did not know, they'd never heard of circumcision before. And so we're talking about it. And one of my sons says, you're not gonna explain that from stage on Sunday, are you? And I said, should I? And they said, no, you should not do that. So if you don't know what that is, talk to a friend and they can explain it to you, right? But we might laugh and think, well, that's ridiculous. Why would people get caught up on something like this? But here's the thing in Paul's day, this was a really, this was a really big deal. So imagine you're the poor guy that you've scheduled your appointment. You've gone in, you've had your procedure. And then a day or two later, somebody comes to your house and says, it's so great. Paul just came here and gave us this letter and says, you don't have to do that anymore. Yeah, you'd be a little frustrated, right? That's some terrible timing. This was a big issue. Not only was it a physical thing, it was a spiritual thing. One translation says this from, from these verses we just read. Paul says, it isn't the cutting of our bodies that makes us children of God. It's worshiping him with our spirit that matters. And that's the point Paul is getting at here. It was this, this infuriated Paul infuriated him. And he wanted to be sure that people were putting their trust in Jesus and not their own abilities. Not that, not that any of us would ever, you know, go do that, right? And you know why this is such a big deal for Paul? Because it was his whole backstory. Before Paul met Jesus personally, Paul was all about his personal accomplishments. The problem was his personal accomplishments had everything to do with him and nothing to do with the work that Jesus had done for him. Listen to verses, what he says in verses four through six. I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone thinks that they have reasons to put their confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and in regard to the law, a Pharisee. And as for zeal, I persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, based on the law, Paul says, I was faultless. Toot, toot, Paul, right? Sounds like he's just tooting his own horn. He wants everybody to know how great he is, but he's actually making a point. We all have these things that we're holding on to, that we think set us apart in some way. And Paul says, well, I hate to tell you, I wouldn't get your hopes up in that stuff. For instance, Paul says, he's letting us know that it would be tempting to put your hope in the fact that you were brought up the right way. In the book of Genesis, God commanded the Israelites to circumcise their sons when they were eight days old. And Paul says, done there, been there, done that. My parents did that for me, check. And if we're not careful, we can adopt the same thing. Now, I don't, I don't know how many of you can relate to this, but I grew up in a family where I was sprinkled as a baby. And I want to say this, I am so thankful for my parents' faith and love for the Lord and the foundation that they have given me. But here's the truth. All the New Testament writers tell us that surrendering to Jesus is a decision you make when you're old enough to understand what it means. And, and what Paul is really saying here is, 
You can't put your trust in a ceremony that someone else has done for you. You need to respond for yourself. And so for me, when I was 20 years old, in tears, I sat in my parents' living room and said, thank you so much for all that you've done, but you've taught me to follow Jesus. I'm being baptized next week. I'd love for you to come. And they did. And it was a great thing for us to discuss in the future. The same thing was true with the Apostle Paul. He was circumcised when he was eight days old, but later on in his life, when it came to following Jesus, he was true to Jesus' command. He was baptized to represent his personal commitment to following Jesus. Paul goes on to say that you could put your hope in the fact that you were born into the right family. He says that he was born of the nation of Israel, born in the tribe of Benjamin. And, and both of those things to us might seem like, well, why, why does that matter? Well, here's the thing. If you've ever heard of the 12 tribes of Israel, one of those tribes was started by a guy named Benjamin. They were all brothers. And Benjamin was the only brother who was born in the promised land. And so the Benjamites thought that they were pretty special. It would be like any of us saying, well, I'm an American. Oh, and by the way, my ancestors came over on the Mayflower, right? We were here first. And so Paul's saying, you got to be really careful. If you're putting your hope in your family heritage and you're taking pride in your, your grandparents' faith or your parents' accomplishments, I wouldn't get your hopes up, Paul says. Paul says, it's tempting to want to put your hope in achieving the right credentials. In, in verse five, Paul says, he refers to himself as the Hebrew of Hebrews and a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees were the religious elite in Paul's day. And here's the thing, there were only like 300 of them at any one time, and Paul was at the very top of that list. He was the most elite. And people would have looked at him like he had it together spiritually. They would have respected him, and he would have been honored, right? And we get this. I mean, we, we want to be known. We want to have a reputation. But Paul says, you got to be really careful, don't be too impressed with your title or with all the letters that follow your name. If you're putting your hope in that, well, I wouldn't get your hopes up, Paul says. Paul says it, it would be tempting to put your hope in your ability to keep a long list of religious rituals. And again, I bet a lot of us can relate to this, right? You were probably taught somewhere along the way, here's the list of rules if you want to be a good spiritual person, do these things and don't do these things. Or here's the list of rules that you need to obey if you want to have the perfect family or be a perfect parent. Or here's the list of rules for things that you need to do if you want to be perfect or good in your, in your field, if you want to be successful. And maybe it's worked to some degree. Or maybe that's just what you keep telling yourself. Because there's a temptation for all of us to put our hope and our ability and our accomplishments and Paul says, hey, if, if that's you, I see you. I get that too, but I wouldn't put your hopes up. In fact, in this section, Paul is basically saying, I dare all of you to, to put together a better resume than mine. You're not gonna find a better resume. And so in verses one through six, he compiles all these things that are really tempting to put your hope in. And then listen to what he says in verses seven and eight. He says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I might have, that I may gain Christ. So in the first six verses, he compiles a list of really impressive things. And he says, hey, it's tempting to put your hope in this, right? And he says, well, I hate to tell you this, but all that stuff is just garbage, garbage. Now, the Greek word for garbage that Paul uses here is actually a really fun one. It's fun to say. It's the word skubala. 
And I want to give you, I, you already said it out loud. I was going to let you do that together. You be, I watched one of you mouth it, scubula, right? So let's, on the count of three, we're going to say scubula together. One, two, three, scubula. Just for fun, look at your neighbor and say scubula. One, two, three, scubula. Okay, fun word to say. I want you to use that once in a conversation this week. Just use it once, okay? Now, actually, you're laughing, but I have a little asterisk, a little side note for you. Um, you got to be real careful with how you use this word, okay? It's not a church word, and I'm a little offended that all of you said it out loud, okay? You got to be careful. You got to listen to Jesus. Don't listen to me, okay? Scubula. Now, here's what's, here's what's crazy about this word. The, the garbage, the word that we have that's translated as garbage is very mild. Other English translations use words like sewer trash or dog dung. Okay, you're getting the point, right? And just in case you're still not tracking with me, one pastor said that had there been bumper stickers back in Paul's day, and you could slap a bumper sticker on the back of a Roman chariot, there might be one that says, scubula happens. Okay, <laughs> this is a strong word. Paul is using some very strong language here. One friend between services said it only occurs one time in all of scripture. He's making a very specific point. Paul is saying, when it comes to pleasing God with our credentials and our accomplishments, do not bother getting your hopes up because it's all scubula. Compared to Jesus, it's all garbage. It, it's sewer trash. Listen to what he says in verses eight and nine. He says, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ, verse nine, and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Listen to this. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Now let those words sink in. Paul says, when it comes to putting your hope in something or someone, it's faith in Jesus and in Jesus alone that will save us, that will forgive our sins, that will restore us with our heavenly father. And all the religious rules, all the professional credentials and personal accomplishments are scubula compared to Jesus. And so this brings us to a really important question for every single one of us. What are some valuable things in your life that have become a little too valuable? What are some things that are valuable, but you've started to put your hope in them? They are competing with the hope that Jesus offers. Or if we were gonna say this the way Paul would say it, what are some things in your life that are valuable that might need to go into the garbage when it comes to your relationship with Jesus? Now, I brought something with, you, with me today. Um, this is a tote that's been sitting in my parents' basement for the last few years. And it's got, you know, it's got all my keepsake stuff in it. You probably have a tote like this, right? Like mine has baseball cards and yearbooks and trophies and all that stuff. Think of where this sits in your house and you might go through it on occasion. Think about what's in there. But here's what I want us to do today. Think about what you might put in here that's valuable that you want to hold on to. But really, if you were honest, it's just competing with Jesus. So the first thing that I would pull out of here would be my paycheck and my 401k, right? This represents money and the comfort and the security that we can find in money. And it's not bad, right? I mean, we all need it. I've got kids to feed. It's not that it's a bad thing. But we live in a culture that says the more of this you have, the more important you are. The more of this you have, the better off you are. But Jesus says, when it comes to God's number one competitor in our life for hope, it's money. 
And so we might be really wise to just reevaluate and say, well, compared to what Jesus can offer me, it's scubla. Money cannot buy what he has bought for us. And, and it's kind of hard to think about, right? But think about the grip that money can have on us. Here's another one. I've got some of my degrees here. This is a, my master's degree that I earned a year and a half ago. A lot of time, effort, energy, money, right? A lot of lost sleep right here. This represents our intellect, the things that we know. And, and you're probably like me, you've been taught that if the key, to, the key to a good life is a good education, right? Because if you have a good education, you can get a good job. And so we, we set out to know things and learn things and none of it's bad. But think of all the things that you could learn or know and not know Jesus. And Paul says, well, compared to what Jesus offers us, compared to knowing him, it's honestly, it's all garbage. I've got one more that's a little more personal. I've got a picture of my wife and kids here and my wedding band. Now, if you don't know anything about me, here's what I would want you to know. We've been married to Casey for 18 years. We have four amazing kids, Jude, Ben, Braun, and Kate. And I love them. I am honored to be her husband and their dad, and I would do anything to provide and protect them, right? Provide for them and protect them. But in Luke 14, Jesus says, anyone that would be my disciple needs to reevaluate all of their relationships like this because it's tempting for us to want to put our hope in these people, right? And it's, it's a little sad and scary to think about, but Jesus says, compared to me, all your other relationships need to be reevaluated. Now, he is not teaching that people are garbage. He's not saying that at all. We are to love and care for one another, but he is saying, make sure that I am in the right place because if I'm not, things are gonna start to get messed up. I've got one for you. This, uh, this represents work for me. And I tend to find my identity in my work. And if people say, oh, Jerry, you're so good. You're doing such a great job. Guess what? My hope is way up here. But have you ever had a bad week at work and just think I'm wasting my time? What am I doing? It's so tempting for, uh, for us to want to put our hope in the work that we do and the influence that we can have. Paul says, be careful what you're working for. Just reevaluate it because it's garbage compared to the work that Jesus has done for you. I've got a, I've got a Fitbit in here because some of us put hope in health and fitness. We want to stay young as long as possible. But think about this. Jesus offers eternal life. So take care of our bodies here and now. But compared to Jesus, our health here and now does not compare to what we're going to experience for eternity when we're right with him. Um, I've got a couple of things. Maybe some of you have these. These are some trophies that I earned throughout my years as a kiddo. In 1985, I was the most improved baseball player. It's the only year I played baseball, I retired. <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm glad I still have this. But this represents like cross country and track. And I didn't have a whole lot of trophies, but I had a lot of these. And maybe you have trophies. And trophies are great, right? I mean, some of them are big, some of them are small. And when we're kids, we want trophies. But the truth is, this goes sit on a shelf and collect dust, right? But it's tempting for us to want to put our faith and hope in, in trophies. And Paul says, just be careful what trophies you're pursuing. And as adults, like we don't, we don't really want trophies, right? As adults, we do something better. We, we just buy our trophies, right? We drive them. We look good in it. We can't even see ourselves in the thing, but we look good in them and we know we do. Where we live and where we live is where we go to school and all those things. These are trophies and we got to be real careful 
real careful. Now, are any of these things bad or wrong in and of themselves? No, we need those things, right? We need to work and we need to love our family. We need money. But if any of these things get to be more valuable than our relationship with Jesus, Paul says, you're getting your hopes in all the wrong things. You're gonna miss out. And, and think about this. When we get more excited about this, what we're really doing is we are trading in a priceless eternal perspective that Jesus offers us for just a momentary feel good. That's it. Paul says you gotta be real careful with where you're finding your hope because everything compared to Jesus is scubala. Nothing compares. Look at what he says in verses 10 and 11. He says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, I don't want to just know about Jesus. I want to know him. What he is saying is, I want to know him the way that I know anyone else with a deep abiding friendship and relationship that goes richer day in and day out. And then he says, I want to attain the resurrection from the dead. Can you find a better hope than that? Paul says, my hope is in the fact that Jesus promises that I will die, but he will bring me back from the dead. He did it for himself. He will do it for me. And this is why Paul says everything else is scubula because none of that stuff can get us there. It doesn't even come close. And so here's my question for all of us today. Where's your hope? Is your hope in some kind of accomplishment? What are you chasing? What are you resting in? Or is your hope in Jesus? And I look out and I see you guys and I know so many of you and I know your hope is in Jesus. But guys, if you're like me, we're holding on to things in this garbage can that just, they don't measure up. And so for those of us that follow Jesus, we gotta, we gotta pray and say, Lord, would you help me to reset my hope in you and in you alone? Would you break my grip on all of these things? Would you help me to be generous with my resources so that my hope is in you? Would you help me to be wise with how I work so that I can bring you into the workplace? None of these things measure up to what he has done for us. And so if we're following Jesus, there's that. But for those of us that aren't following Jesus, he's waiting on you to say, I'm ready. And it just begins by surrendering and saying, okay, I believe I don't have all the answers, but I believe that you have what I need. You have the life. I see these people that have embraced this life. And so talk to the person that you came with today or come and find me before you leave. Let's talk because Jesus offers us true and lasting hope. Paul says, I want to know Christ. I want to know him. But here's what's fascinating, Jesus. Jesus wants to know you and he wants you to know him as well. Just meet him, let him meet you where you are and let him transform your life as we move forward. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm so thankful that Paul used his time so well when he was in prison. I look forward to meeting him in heaven one day and just thanking him for his encouragement to suffer, to embrace humility, 
to serve others and to find hope in Jesus. This guy was not riding from an ivory tower. He was riding from a cell chained to a guard. And he said, don't put your hope in anything but Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you grab hold of our hearts? Would you break our grip on the things that we're holding on to that are fruitless, that are hopeless? And would you reorient us back to Jesus? Help us to live and live out and to fulfill the lives you have for us. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. As we close, I want to read um, verses 12 through 14 for you. Listen to what Paul says. He goes on. He says, Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, Forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Do you hear that phrase, forgetting what's behind? That phrase doesn't mean that you fail to remember. I learned this week that it means to no longer be influenced by. So in other words, Paul is encouraging us not to be derailed by our past mistakes or distracted by our present accomplishments, but to put our hope fully in who Jesus is. And then if he goes on in the next verse, in verse 15, and he says something to the effect of, if you're mature, you will understand these things. But if you don't, if you have questions, it's okay. The Spirit will lead you in answering your questions. You don't have to have it all figured out, but trust in Jesus and he will get you there.